Israel, when we travel there, when we tour there, I call, I call it often firehose ministry or firehose teaching because you get so much packed into such a short amount of time of, of the word open. And it's, it literally is like opening your mouth and having a fire hose stuck in your mouth and someone just cranks it on. And, and that's tonight. This is firehose teaching. So brace yourselves, we're going to go through chapters 35 through 39 tonight, and we will see the finished work of the tabernacle. We're going to see it from sockets and screens to coverings and curtains to furnishings and and garments, taking us right up to the final chapter of Shemot, book of names, or the Exodus as we call it. Now, what I'm going to do with this as we read through it is I'm going to pull out several principles, seven or eight principles along the way. You can jot down these principles, things that we gain understanding even as we study through these things. And some of these things are going to be very familiar to you because we have studied them with a fine-tooth comb already. And they're back in here again. You might be saying, well, why are they back in there again? Well, let me give you some principles, and you'll see why. And the first principle, which I'm going to give you before we even read the first verse of chapter 35... Principle number one, jot this down, revelation often comes by repetition. Now, note, I didn't say learning comes by repetition. Granted, that's a a way of teaching, that's a way of learning things by hearing it over and over until finally it gets in. I didn't say that. I said revelation comes by repetition. See, the Bible says, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That it's piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's God's word. It's a living document. But not like some would try to say that the Constitution's a living document. That's one of the arguments in our country is someone to say it's a living document. That, therefore, it, it changes with culture, and we got to change it to meet the changing culture. No, this is a true living document in that it is God-breathed and continues to speak the truth to us no matter what's going on in the culture. It's living, and it is active. Chapters 35 through 39 contain in many cases, exact repeats of the blueprints that we studied in chapters 24 through 31. Now, when this happens in the Bible, you have two options. One is to say, well, we already read that. Skip it. What's the next thing? And far too many of us have done that or do that. The other option you have is to say, why is this here again? What is he saying now? What is the revelation that the Lord has for us this time around, because revelation often comes by repetition. See, the living and active word of God, it it begs this question, why such repetition? And the reality is, for you and for me as human beings, my dad used to say, sometimes it takes a while for the water to soak into the center of the sponge. (laughs) Takes a while for us to get it, you know? And when we do, revelation, ah, And you've had those aha moments where you've read a passage or a parable or a teaching or a verse a hundred times. And then on 101, you read it and go, oh. And what's even more remarkable is you read that same verse 10 years later and you go, oh. (laughs) Because repetition offers and brings revelation. In the Gospels, for example, Jesus did this. 
You may not be aware of this, but he repeats similar teachings and parables in multiple settings. If a parable worked in one setting, Jesus had no problem teaching it again in another setting, but it always was tailor-made to the audience. He's always speaking to the people. We see this, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. There are those who say, well, yeah, and so is Luke chapter 6, because the teaching is very similar of both, so Luke 6 must be Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. The only problem is Luke says that Jesus delivered it on the plain. One's the Sermon on the Mount. The other one's the Sermon on the Plain. Both contain very similar elements, repetition. And the thing that you got to remember is while Jesus taught on the plain, the plain truth is Jesus was a repeater. And he repeated his parables and he repeated his teachings. Though his audience might change, the truth doesn't. Though culture changes, the truth doesn't. The truth is revelatory. And by the way, don't forget that while the audience often did change with Jesus as he was moving from town to town and place to place, the apostles didn't. They were the same 12 guys. So they would have heard these over and over. I can just hear Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, and Peter nudging John. Yeah, this is a good one. I, I know this one. In spirit! Because <laughs> I've heard this many times, Lord. They heard it again and again and again, and you know what Peter learned? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he said, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, this earthly tent, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly tent is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and by the commandment of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, spoken to your apostles. So he says, I, I, I'm stirring you up. I'm repeating these things. You need the reminder. And in this repetition, as I think you'll experience tonight, faith gets stirred Kindled like a fire. You know, our fires can smolder a bit, kind of die down, and then we go back in again, and we get stirred up and brighten up, and the flames jump to life. But listen, it's not only about reminders. That the Bible is not a book of post-it notes. That we're not reading you know, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which detail the same things going on in Israel. We don't have those books back to back just because we want to remember. It's with the repetition comes the revelation. And here's one for you in this section we're about to come into. Exodus 35 through 39 has to do with one primary thing. Well, yeah, Rick, you told us the tabernacle, right? Finishing up the work of the tabernacle. No. It has to do with one thing, and that is the worship of God. That's what this is about. 
That's the undercurrent of the tabernacle. That's why God called for it to be constructed. That's why he called for the exacting specifications of the furnishings and the, and the curtains. And even down to the sockets, everything was precise. Because this is about the worship of God. And J. Alec Mottier, a favorite of mine these days, said, It is a plain derivative of this concluding section of Exodus that the Lord is to be worshipped only as he directs. And allows. Because you see, the worship of God is about God. It is for God. Oh, hey, someone's, I'm on. I just heard myself say derivative. If you got an iPhone, that's what that is. That's, that's just me. <laughs> How fun. Who's got it? Who's, who's got it on? Because I can't, I can't preach and listen to myself preach back to me. Find it, turn it off. <laughs> Hello? I think it's off. Okay. <laughs> this is about the worship of God. And worshiping him is to be done his way because it's his worship. And we can forget that. We can think, oh no, it's about us. I don't like those songs. Well, I'm sorry, it's not about you. Maybe the Lord does like those songs. Well, I don't like that style. Well, I'm sorry, it's not about you. Maybe the Lord does like that style. See, we can get so hung up in our experience of worship that we miss the fact that it is for the Lord. And that's why this is so specific. It's all about worshiping God. His way, the right way, and the way he prescribes now to Israel. Now, thankfully, Jesus came along and in John 4, 24 said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's get right down to the heart of the matter. Some of you might say, Rick, you have quoted John 4, 24 so many times recently. <laughs> Repetition. So keep your ears and your eyes open and keep your minds and your hearts clear tonight. Chapter 35, verse 1, then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days, work may be done. But on the seventh day, you shall have a holy day, a Shabbat of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. That's how serious this is. It's almost like God saying, look, you're working yourselves to death. So take a day off or I'm just going to take you out. <laughs> we'll just take care of it right now. He says in verse 3, you shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. Principle number two, we are kindled best from the place of rest. We are kindled best from the place of rest. You want to be stirred up in your reminder. You want to be stirred up in revelation. You come out of rest and that's when you're ready to go. We are kindled best from the place of rest. Before the work begins, here we go again. Moses talks about the Sabbath day law, the fourth commandment, and this is the fourth time that he's talked about it since Exodus 16. Since the day that God began to rain manna down from heaven and settle it with the morning dew, from that point forward, Moses was talking about Shabbat. And it's the fourth, again, in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments, over and over, Shabbat, 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 and right here at the beginning of the work, as it's about to be detailed and they're about to set themselves to the work, don't forget, one day in seven, so you work hard for six days on this tabernacle and then you Shabbat, you cease, you rest. And then he gives this really interesting, strange little prohibition 
He says, don't even kindle a fire on the Sabbath day, verse 3. All kinds of things he could have said, ways he said, could have said to rest, but he chooses this one. Don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. And it's interesting, the old rabbis interpreted this in Talmud, that you can't start a fire on the Sabbath day. So you're chopping the wood, stacking the wood, dragging it into the house, and getting out the newspaper and the lighter fluid and lighting the whole thing up. And all the work that goes into it, you can't do that. But if the fire's already burning, that's okay. That's got some wisdom to it. And a matter of fact, there are a couple of things right in here about the idea of being kindled that are very good. One is preparation, that if you know Shabbat is coming and you're readying yourself for Shabbat, you build a nice big fire so that it will burn then through the next day. But along with preparation comes something else, and that's provision. I imagine God allowed that fire to continue burning through the day. You're not to kindle it. The word kindle in the Hebrew is to stir it up. So really, you're supposed to get the fire going and leave it alone through the Sabbath day. That's fine in the warm summer months. What about when it's cold and dark? And there are some Jewish factions actually who rejected outright any, any burning of a fire at all, even a fire that was lit before Shabbat. You, you couldn't do that, and though they would spend the day in the cold and in the dark. I don't think that was God's intention. In fact, I think if the fire isn't lit before you rest your rest is going to be cold and dark. You know what I'm saying? If the fire isn't lit before you rest, the rest is going to be dark. It's going to be cold. Why? Because rest comes by faith. I'm talking about Shabbat rest, true rest. It comes from the place of faith. Trusting that the fire he lit in my spirit will not go out. And when that fire is lit and then I enter into rest, the rest is about him. And it's a good rest. The fire's not lit beforehand. I can try to rest. I can take time off. I can vacation. It's not going to do any good. It's a rest that brings me to the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse 15. You have heard it before. Repetition. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. See, the repentance precedes the rest. Turn to me and rest. Or as Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The fire is kindled before the rest begins. So revelation often comes by repetition, and we are kindled best from the place of rest. And now that you're all so well rested, verse four. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, this is the thing of which the Lord has commanded, saying, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring as the Lord's contribution gold, silver, bronze, blue and scarlet materials, fine linen, goat's hairs, ramskins dyed red, porpoise skins and acacia wood, and oil for lighting and spices for anointing oil, for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful man among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its hooks, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the ark and its poles, the mercy seat, and the curtain of the screen. 
and the table and its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light and its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense and its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the doorway at the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its sockets, the screen for the gate of the court, and the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, and their cords, and woven garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. And then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting for all its service for the whole and for the holy garments. Note that this is the Lord's contribution. God said it. Moses said it, actually. And then the people did it. Bring the Lord's contribution. I find it interesting that it's called the Lord's contribution and not Israel's contribution because Principle number three, what I have, I have from him. What I have to give is not from me. It's originally from him. And then this principle can be lost on us, but Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell on it. It's all his. You're his. What you have is his. What you've been given is his. And so what I give in terms of offerings and tithes, it's the Lord's contribution. It's not mine. Let me ask you this. Is it too much for the owner of all things to ask us to entrust to him what is already his? It's a completely different paradigm from how a lot of times we give. You know, we do the bills. We get down to the end of it. We say, do we have enough? Can we give something? You know, because I, I got all, I take care of my needs and then I'll see what I got left as opposed to saying, no, it's his in the first place. He gave it to me. This is the Lord's contribution. Do you trust him in it? Verse 22 continuing says, then all whose hearts were moved, had moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and all articles of gold. So every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. There it is again, the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun, blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen, all the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. Verse 27, the rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil for the fragrant incense. Verse 29, the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. How do you know it was a free will offering? Well, other than the Bible tells us, we know because every man, every woman whose heart was moved to do so. 
They did not bring under compulsion. They were not under pressure. They were not guilt-tripped into giving. Moses didn't stand up there and say, dig deep down into your pocketbooks. Bring to the Lord and my new Lamborghini. He said, give if the Lord tells you to give. You all know that's why the boxes are in the back and why we don't pass a bag. You get, that's between you and Jesus. It's between you and the Lord. If the Lord stirs up your heart, moves you to give, you do so. And you trust him with it. And you recognize that it is the Lord's contribution. But back in Exodus 25, verse 2, God already made the pronouncement from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And so we see it over and over again in this passage. Every heart, every heart, every heart, the heart of men who are stirred and the heart of women who are stirred, bring what you got. And if the Lord stirs up the heart, and so principle number four, the heart of the work is a work of the heart. The heart of the work is a work of the heart. If the heart is not in it, don't do it. And that goes far beyond even contribution and giving and service and time and pouring yourself out. The heart of the work is a work of the heart. If your heart's not in something, it is a joyless, joyless drudgery. Your heart's not in it, it's a drag. And giving itself, if the heart's not in it, giving becomes like prying open the hand rather than open-handed worship. If the heart's not in it, God is looking for your heart. Jesus is inviting a relationship at a heart level, not a, under religious compunction. Good word, compunction. It's, it's the idea of, I love Jesus. I want to give. And when I do, I just, it's, it's a joy. It's, it's cheerful. Let me ask you about that. Maybe ask yourself, is my giving to the, of the Lord's contribution a free will offering? Is it joyful or is it fearful? Is it a glad day when I'm able to give some of what the Lord has given to me or is it a fretful day? Is it a resentful day? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That is just, that's another spiritual principle of the work of the heart. He says each one must do just as he has purposed. Note this, Paul says, in his heart. Same idea here. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you'll have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, Psalm 112, verse nine, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing, note this, through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service 
is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. Yeah, that goes on. And when you give, yeah, it takes care of the needs of the church. It takes care of missions. It takes care of benevolence. It takes care of our ministry staff. It takes care of the overhead and all that other stuff. Yeah, that's, that's all part of it. But listen, it's more than that. Paul said it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. If you struggle being a thankless person, if you struggle with the idea of being thankful for what God's giving you in your life, maybe you need to start giving back. In your giving will come thanksgiving. It, it, it is a heart change that takes place because the heart of the work is a work of the heart. And what God invites you, invites me into is a dynamic faith life that is filled with thanksgiving. And it's important. It's important that we develop that, that spirit, that heart of thanksgiving, because you know what? Life's not always going to go well. And you're going to find yourself in need. And you're going to find yourself hurting and struggling. And in those times, when the thanksgiving has already been churning in your life, it continues. It will carry you through. Being thankful to the Lord, no matter what's happening, circumstantially, because he's trained that up in our hearts, in our spirits. Well, back in, in Exodus. Where did I leave off there? 29? Is that right? Pick it up in verse 30. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by the name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he's filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge and in all craftsmanship, to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings and the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work. He's also put in his heart to teach. Now, we hadn't heard this before. He's put it in the heart of Bezalel to teach. Both he and Aholiab, the son of Asimach of the tribe of Dan, he's filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. Note that God is now moving in the hearts of these men with wisdom and understanding. It's part of a list, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are all, these three things we mentioned before are all ministries of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom and understanding and knowledge are all in that list of, of the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And so the Spirit is now poured out on Bezalel and Aholiab, and God is also gifting them with the gift of teaching. That they now can take their ability and, and they can start to teach others. And others are going to get involved now in the process as well. Middle-aged rabbinical scholar Abraham Ibn Ezra, often just known as Ibn Ezra, said there are many scholars who are incapable of teaching. I think I took some of their classes in college. <laughs> this is clearly a spiritual gift that is given. This, this gift of, of teaching but I want you to note something here. There are those with the gift of teaching. And, and teaching is listed more than one place as a spiritual gift in the New Testament. 
And we see it even here that he's going to pour out wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And he's going to put in his heart to teach. So he's going to give them the gift of teaching. But remember that the heart of the work is a work of the heart. And so even teaching, especially when it comes to the gospel, the good news of God's word, it's not difficult when your heart is already affected by Jesus. I've had too many conversations with too many Christians saying, oh, I can't teach. Do you love Jesus? Well, yeah, then you can teach. You might not come off as a Bible scholar. You might not prepare lessons and teach for two and a half hours like I'm going to do tonight. You might not do that, <laughs> that kind of thing. But you know what? If you love Jesus, when you open his word, you can teach. You can teach his word. Yes, some have the gift of teaching, but we're all invited to, called to teach. And what we teach is what we know in the heart. And oftentimes, that kind of teaching is more profound than any studied preparation of a sermon. Teach from the heart. Some of you tonight listening right now are saying, you know, I've been asked a couple of times to lead a small group, and I just, I, I can't teach. We didn't ask if you could teach. Asking, do you love Jesus? Are you willing to open up the Bible and tell people why you love Jesus? And it's a matter of the heart. And that, that changes lives. Just open the Bible, teach from the heart. But these guys are set up to, to not only be gifted with the gifts of wisdom and understanding and knowledge, but now they can teach others to do the same thing. Chapter 36, verse 1. Now, Bezalel and Aholiab... And every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work and the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab. Together, we would just call them B and O. I'm not sure if that would be a good idea. But. And every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill and everyone, here it is again, whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. I mean, the people were getting into giving. They were having a ball with this. Verse 4, and all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord has commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Now, I have never heard a pastor or church leader ever make that proclamation. You're giving too much. Whoa, Nellie. You dial it back. We're going to take a couple of weeks. We're going to take the boxes off the wall because the giving's just off the charts. We got more than we even know what to, I mean, that's what was going on here. It's, it's hilarious to me. The people were all in. And so Moses literally had to say, throughout the camp of Israel, halt all giving. We got more than enough. What a marvelous thing to be able to say. But I wonder, how can a people go from Naked rebellion around a golden calf to such 
overwhelming, all-in generosity. I mean, everybody's doing it. Everybody's excited about it. They're jumping in. They're giving. They're involved. They're engaged in this process. How do they, I mean, and this is short order. This did not take long. 40 days? Month and a half? Two months before they turn around, and now they're just giving until they can't stop. Listen, the number of times that it says the people's hearts were stirred is five. And it just serves to remind us that five is the number of grace. And grace is the greatest motivator for generosity. Principle number five, generosity comes from the place of grace. You want to see a generous people? It's a people who understand grace. You want to see a, a, a tight-fisted people in a church? It's a legalistic church. Now, I have seen that and experienced that. I've seen that to be true where legalism is the bottom line and demands people will only give what is absolutely required and what they feel guilty if they don't give. That's where it's going to stop. But in a place where people get grace, where they understand the grace of the Lord, and, and I've told you this many times before, this is one of those places. I'm not telling you to halt your giving, but I am telling you that the giving is amazing. And for 17 years, I've never seen a church give like this church gives. And I believe it's because it comes from the place of grace. Generosity from the place of grace. Go back to chapter 33 for a second. Exodus 33, verse 3. And note this. Remember this. We, we covered it last week. The Lord says to Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. See, that's ultimately what happened after the golden calf. The rebellion was squashed quickly and the people began to mourn at the reality that God said, I can't go with you. I can't abide this rebellion. Now, now he will abide rebellion because it will keep happening. But he says, I got to think about what I'm going to do with you people. As, as it stands right now, I'm not going. I'll make sure I send my angel before you, and I'll make sure that you get into the promised land, and I'll make sure the inhabitants get driven out. But I, I'm, not, I'm not going. And the people literally went into mourning. And it reminds me of what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. There is a sorrow that precedes salvation, a sorrow over sin, a recognition that I'm driving away the very loving hands of the God who made me. And when I come to that place of sorrow, then salvation can happen. Then I turn to him and I say, Lord, I just, I just want to be with you, whatever it takes. Paul said, but the sorrow of the world just produces death. That's just sorrow of guilt. That doesn't do anybody any good. But apparently when the sons of Israel realized the Lord had forgiven them and would now go with them, their hearts were all in the work. Generosity came from the place of grace. What? He is going to go? He is with us and for us? He's still calling on us to build this tabernacle? Oh, we are in, and they were. It's a remarkable thing to watch grace change a heart into pure generosity because I, I can't stop giving when I know what he's given when I've experienced that myself. It's, it's the weeping woman 
who washed Jesus' feet in the house of Simon the Pharisee. We've read this story several times recently. Dried his, washed his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, and then anoints them with expensive perfume. And Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Imagine what she heard in that moment. Jesus said, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And she left all of her burdens behind that day. She knew joy that she had never known. And it's just like Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf, generosity comes from the place of his grace. And that's where we see this in the people. They just can't stop giving because they recognize what God has done for them in forgiving them and in loving them. So we come to the work on the inner court, verse 8. All the skillful men among whom were performing the work made the tabernacle with tin curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material with cherubim, the work of skillful workmen, Bezalel made them. And then it goes into the curtains and coverings and it gives the links that we've studied the links. We've looked at it in, in precise detail. And the coverings and the clasps of gold and the, and the sockets of silver. It goes through all these things and we come all the way down then to verse 20 and we come to the boards. So the, the second thing that he's, he's working on, he's made all the coverings. Now he's going to make the boards, the skeletal frame, if you will, for the inner court, for the tabernacle. He made the boards, verse 20, for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits was the length of each board and one and a half cubits was the width of each board. And two tenons for each board fitted to one another. And you can read that all the way down. I'm not going to right now, but I do want to read verse 31. And then he made bars of acacia wood. Five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. Note that, and then it says he made a middle bar to pass through and overlaid the boards with gold and made the rings of gold and as holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. Okay, so what's the deal here? The inner court made all the coverings, that are going to be like walls and the bars that will be the skeletal structure and hold it up and, and the, the coverings will hang from these bars as they're between these, these squares of wood and the woods are, wood and the bars are acacia wood overlaid with gold. So you remember that? But what's interesting to me here is that it's five bars for each of the three sides of the tabernacle. So five bars for the north side and five bars for the south side and five bars for the, let's see, wait, north, south. East, east. so the west side, north, south, and west. But no bars for the east side. That's going to be the entrance. You come into the tabernacle from the east side. But five bars for each one of the sides, but they're listed out. Five bars here, five bars there, five bars there. Why not just say 15 bars and be done with it? <laughs> you know, 15 bars to cover the three sides of the, of the tabernacle. That would have been real easy to say, but he points out the five bars. And if you begin to think about that again, okay, so five is the number of Grace in the Bible, we hear over and over, and any time you see the number five, think, okay, there's, a, there's grace going on here. But it's also a picture of the church that Jesus built. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, says he gave to the church some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. What for? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Five bars. For the building of the body. It's such an interesting picture to me because these are the Bezalels and the Oholiabs of the church. I'm talking about the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. These are the the guys who, who maybe they've been given specific gifts for specific roles in the church. And just like the tabernacle, the church has boards to hold it up. Church boards? Right? We have a church board. I actually don't like the word board because it sounds so business-like, but we have a group of shepherds. We have a group of leaders for the Bridge Fellowship. But note this, that 16 times in chapters 35 through 39 and another eight times in chapter 40, we hear this phrase, the Lord has or the Lord had commanded. As the Lord has or as the Lord had commanded. It is the single most repeated phrase in this entire section. This is done according to the will of the Lord, according to how God commanded, period, bottom line. We hear it over and over and over and over. And you know what? Principle number six, an obedient body is a strong body. An obedient body is a strong body. Let me kind of weave this together for you a little bit. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Bezalel, Oholiab, teaching others to also work in the ministry of the tabernacle for the building of these things. And the five bars, that picture, I think, of church leadership, or we can look at it that way, of building the church. How do you build up the church? It's got to have bars to hold it together. Churches need leadership. Leadership is flawed, right? Because they are human, they're human beings who, who lead. Those Apostles are human beings. Those pastors and prophets and evangelists and teachers, those are, those are dudes who are no better than anyone else. Oholiab and Bezalel were not any better than anybody else. But they were gifted for a specific calling. And my belief and my understanding from the scriptures is every single one of us are gifted for specific calling. And we're called to function in that gifting. And and that's so I bring my part and I do my thing. And there's no one that's better than anyone else, but there are different roles all across the body that the body is being built up. Some are equippers. Some are the equipped. Some equip the equippers. And some are equippers of the equipped. But it's all the body working together and an obedient body is a strong body. And listen to this passage, this just was given to me today and it fit in so well here. Luke chapter 17, verse seven. Listen to this parable of Jesus because it goes right to the heart of an obedient fellowship. Which of you, Luke 17, verse seven, having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him, And of course, when we're talking slave, we're talking a bond slave, someone who works as a servant in the house. Think, you know, uh, Downton Abbey. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? No. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward 
you may eat and drink. See, that's the process. That's what the bondservant does. They serve in the master's house, right? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. What's your part? What does God ask you to do? Guess what? Every last one of us in the body of Christ in the church are slaves of the house. That's, that's what we are. None better than anyone else. I, I joke about Downton Abbey, but the, the, the head butler guy had a role of overseeing the staff of the servants, but he was just a servant. When it came to the actual family and the lordly manner of the household, he, he was no better than any of the other servants. They were just all servants. That's us. That's the body. But an obedient body is a strong body. And the Lord has, has given leadership in the body. Man, then you listen to the leadership. That's hard to say because I know I'm part of the leadership of this fellowship. I'm not asking you to follow me, but I guess like Paul said, I would say follow me as I follow Christ. If I'm not following Christ, don't follow me. I'm just going down to Taco Bell. Please don't follow me. But if I'm following Christ and doing what Jesus has called me to do, you do what Jesus has called you to do and let's walk together in obedience because an obedient body is a strong body. We are living in days right now of mass disobedience. Jesus called it lawlessness, saying that because of this, the love of most would grow cold. Let's not allow lawlessness to creep into the mentality of the church. Well, I don't like what that shepherd is doing. Well, I don't like what that pastor said. It's beside the point. I mean, unless, unless what he said is heretical, then by all means, don't like it and don't follow it. Unless what he's doing is immoral, well, then by all means, no way. But if it's just inconvenient, or if it's just not something that you like personally, or I like, it's kind of beside the point. A strong body is an obedient body. An obedient body is a strong body. And by the way, the obedience runs into leadership as well. Leaders need to be obedient to one another, which goes for me, which is why I'm surrounded by a group of shepherds that I listen to, and I need to be obedient to as we work through things together. It works for all of us, we are just servants of the house. Bezalel, Aholiab, had very special roles, very special tasks given to them. But their job was to fix the church board and to build the tabernacle. So what it comes back down to and what God asks over and over and over is what has the Lord commanded of you, Connie? What is the Lord telling you? Don't tell me right now. <laughs> tell me afterward. What's the Lord commanded you, Cam? That's, that's your concern. What has the Lord commanded us? Do that. Verse 35 of chapter 36. We got to roll. Verse 30. Did I say 35? Is that where we are? Is it? Yeah. Yes. Yes, chapter 36, verse 35. So that's over here. Oh, so moreover, now we get into more specifics. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, and he made it with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. 
He made four pillars of acacia for it, and he overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. So the veil to the most holy place. Remember, when you think about the tabernacle, oftentimes we think about the whole thing, and it is the whole thing, but the actual tabernacle, the actual tent, is that which only has the holy place and the most holy place. It's the tent with the roof on it that's inside the larger courtyard. Now, the whole thing is the tabernacle, but the tabernacle specific is the inside. And so of this inner court, he begins with the veil. There's a veil that separates between the most holy, the holy place and the most holy place. And that's what he's just described there, the veil. And it reminds me, note what he says, four pillars of acacia for it, overlaying them with gold. Four of them. You go through the veil. And there are four pillars of gold that hold up the veil. You see what he's saying here? Four pillars, you go through the veil. How many gospels? Four gospels. The gospels of Jesus Christ through whom we enter into the most holy presence of God. We go through the gospels to the Lord, through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. In fact, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is, the Hebrew pastor says, his flesh. We go through Jesus. Verse 37, we come now to the entrance to the holy place. Verse 37 tells us, or actually, no, it's not the entrance there. This is the, the entrance, of, yeah, verse 37, I'm sorry. There's a lot to cover here. He made a screen for the doorway of the tent. So this is not the veil. This is now the outer screen. You could call it the screen door. A screen for the door of the tent, blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver, and he made its five pillars Okay, so just like the five pillars around on the other sides, he made it of five pillars with their hooks and overlaid their tops and their bands with gold and their five sockets were of bronze. Well, this is the outer screen. Why would the sockets be bronze? Because it faces out to the outer courtyard where judgment took place, where everything out there is gonna be bronze, as we will see again in just a minute. Now, number five again. As we enter in, we enter in by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So you enter in through grace. And now, chapter 37, we come to the furnishings. First of which is the Ark of the Covenant. Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia wood. Its length was two and a half cubits. Its width, one and a half cubits. Its height, one and a half cubits. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and he made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold for it on its four feet, and even two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side. Made poles of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold, put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. So far, the ark is simply a box, an acacia wood box with no lid overlaid inside and out with gold. And as we talked about before, it portrays Jesus, his humanity overlaid, if you will, in divinity. Humanity in divinity, the acacia wood, the gold, the two together, portraying that of that nature, the nature of Jesus. And then we come to the mercy seat. Now we get a lid for the box. He made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And he made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. 
And the cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. That is, looking inward. And what's interesting here, just a side note, for those of you who have heard me talk about cherubim, Ezekiel chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4, the cherubim have four faces, right? But apparently there are cherubim that just have one. Because these cherubim are looking at each other toward the ark on top of the ark on the mercy seat. It says they're facing inward. Well, how can they face inward if they have four faces? They'd be facing everyward. But they're facing each other. Just a little, see, it's these tidbits you get when you, when you study with Pastor Rick. So anyway, the mercy seat on top of the ark also portrays Jesus in that it portrays the throne of Christ. The throne. Revelation 4 and 5 describes the throne in heaven. This is a picture of that. In Revelation 4 and 5, you see the cherubim around the throne in heaven. Here it's called the mercy seat. It's a beautiful picture, Hebrews 4, 16, that, that less read during communion. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 10, then he made a table. Of acacia wood, two cubits long and a cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. This is the table of showbread, which we studied before. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding for it all around. He made a rim for it, a hand breadth all around, and made a gold folding, molding for its rim all around. He cast four gold rings for it and put the rings in the four corners, which were on its four feet. And close by the rim were the rings and the holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the rings or the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold to carry the table. He made the utensils which were on the table, its dishes, its pans, its bowls, its jars with which to pour out drink offerings of pure gold. And so this is the table of showbread. Ark, mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies. You come through the veil into the holy place, the, the first place that you'll actually come into, but you come out of the inner Holy of Holies into the holy place and there, on the, as you come out, is going to be the table of showbread on one side, which is just now described. That portrays Jesus too. Every one of the furnishings of the tabernacle portrays Jesus in one way or another. Jesus here, table of showbread. Jesus is the bread of heaven. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You need to note this because every aspect of the tabernacle points ahead to Israel's Mashiach, Messiah. All of the specifications are the intentionality of God saying, my son is coming and I'm preparing you for that and you're gonna worship in him and through him and by him. And these are all just pictures in type of the Son of God who is to come. And so here, the table of showbread, Jesus, the bread of heaven. Next, the golden menorah, verse 17. He made the lampstand of pure gold, made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, its flowers were of one piece with it. There were six branches going out from its sides. So three branches of the lampstand from one side of it and three branches of the lampstand from the other side of it. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in the other branch. So for all six branches going out from the lampstand, in the lampstand there were four cups 
shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. And a bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it. And a bulb was under the second pair of branches coming out of it. And a bulb was under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. So if you've seen the lampstand or the menorah, you know there's the main shaft going up and then you've got a branch coming out either side like this and then a little higher, another branch coming out either side like this and a little higher branch coming out either side. You've got a bulb where each branch comes out on the sides of this lampstand, right? I know you can all see this vividly. It portrays the spirit of Christ, the lampstand does. Where did I stop? What verse did I pause in there? Um, six branches going out, four cups, bulbs under each one. Bulbs and branches were of one piece with it. Verse 23, he made its seven lamps and its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. He made it with all its utensils, note this, from a talent of pure gold. A talent of pure gold, 75.6 pounds. So they had 75.6 pounds of pure gold melted down and they hammered this thing. This is the, I believe, the only piece, if I'm thinking, aside from the mercy seat, it's the only other piece that is pure gold. It's just gold. So they hammered it out to look like this, and it portrays the spirit of Christ. Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And that lampstand we pointed out before, and I just, I love the picture, so I'll say it again. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, that talks about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. The lampstand reminds us of the Spirit. Why? Well, you've got the Spirit of the Lord, main shaft, and then you've got wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord for seven lamps. Such a beautiful picture in the lampstand. And God had this right there in the holy place, and it would light up the holy place, the beautiful weavings of, of, the, of the walls and the, and the veil. And, of course, the other things are all overlaid in gold, so there's going to be a shining off of the gold that's in that beautiful room, the golden menorah. God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So the lampstand, by the way, What's the deal with the bulbs? I mean, you're reading about this, and he, he spends a lot of time mentioning the bulbs. If you're reading in the, I believe, the English Standard Version, it doesn't say bulbs. It says calyxes, or a calyx. A bulb is a calyx, C-A-L-Y-X. In, in English, it's an English word. If you're a botanist, you would know this. I'm not, so I didn't. A bulb is a calyx. The word is captor in Hebrew. Captor, it, it, it's a knob. You think about that as, as in a fruit tree. Some, some try and say that the bulbs are actually fruit. No, captor is not a word for fruit. It's a word for, for bulb or for calyx. And it's, it's that knuckly place on a tree or, or a, a bush growing up. I was sharing with the staff earlier today that we have these cherry trees in our front yard. And we've got one, they're, they're kind of growing wild. I really need to do some trimming and figure out how to do that. Like I said, I'm not a botanist. So I have no idea, but got to figure out how to do this. We have one cherry tree in the middle, and the branches are kind of growing a little weird, and then it's, we've got this one branch that stops right about here and then just shoots straight up. It's like alfalfa's hair, if you ever watch The Little Rascals, just sticking straight up in our yard. So I got to cut this thing off, and I'm reading about where do you cut it off. You cut it off at the calyx, the bulb, the knuckle. And if you look at the 
cherry tree, it goes up and there's a little knuckle right there. And then there's the new growth that shoots straight up out of it. That's what he's talking about. And what's so beautiful here, think this through with me, branches, knobs or, or bulbs or calyxes, flowers, cups. What he's describing here for the gold menorah, the lampstand, is a tree. It's a tree. I believe recalling and pointing to the tree of life. It looks back to the tree of life in the garden. It looks ahead to the tree of life that is promised for all who overcome. Revelation 2.7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. He has this in mind. The tree of life bringing light. Revelation 22.14, listen even to the description. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Well, that's what the priests did. They would wash themselves and then enter through the screen into the holy place where the tree was, the menorah. In Jewish thinking, they look at the menorah as the tree of life. There was a, you may remember the, the synagogue shooting that happened, I believe, in New York a few years back, and it was the Tree of Life Synagogue. And the picture, their, their logo, if you will, is the menorah. The menorah, by the way, is also the symbol for Israel. It's not the Star of David like we see on their flag. You ask an Israeli, what's your national symbol? It's the menorah. It's the lampstand, the seven-candled lampstand. It's a tree, my friends, the Tree of Life. Jesus is our life. God provided life eternal in the garden. Man fell and sinned. God put a reminder of the tree of life right inside the tabernacle. As sacrifices would be made and sin atoned for, for the time being. But we are invited to eat of the tree of life in New Jerusalem forever and ever. Jesus is our life. The light of the world. And that life was the light of men, John said. Verse 25. Then we come to the altar of incense. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood, a cubit long, a cubit wide square, two cubits high. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, its horns, and he made a gold molding for it all around. He made two golden rings for it under its molding. And on its two sides, opposite side, on opposite sides, as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made poles of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense of spices, the work of a perfumer. It's the altar of incense, which again portrays the intercession of Christ, the prayers of Jesus. This was where the priests prayed. They offered up the incense. And as the incense went up as sweet-smelling smoke before the Lord, the priest would pray. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us Jesus, unlike the priest, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, we reverse direction. So we've just started on the inside of the tabernacle and made our way to the outer door coming past. We started with the Ark of the Covenant, mercy seat. In the inside, that's the most holy place. You come through the veil into the holy place, coming inside out, and you have right there the, uh, arc, or the altar of incense. And then over on this side, you have the table of showbread. Over on this side, you have the golden menorah, the lampstand, tree of life. You come through there, and then you come through the outer screen, and you find yourself in the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. But beginning with chapter 38, we change direction. 
And we start having just come into the tabernacle with the altar of burnt offering. So when you come into the tabernacle, first thing you see is the place sacrifice is made. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide, square, and three cubits high. So it's seven and a half feet square. And he made this, its horns on its four corners, horns being of one piece with it, and overlaid it with bronze. He made the utensils of the altar, the pails and the shovels and the basins and the flesh hooks and the fire pans, and he made all its utensils of bronze. He made for the altar a grating of bronze network underneath, under its ledge reaching halfway up. He cast four rings on the four ends of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood. He overlaid them with bronze. He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to carry it, and he made it hollow with planks, the bronze altar portraying the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrificial offering of Jesus. But get this, it's bronze. And from this bronze altar, we start to understand, we start to get the picture that bronze is the color, it's the metal of judgment in the Bible. When Jesus went to the cross, he took the judgment. The cross being that picture of the bronze altar of sacrifice and being lifted up on the cross, just like the serpent is lifted up in the wilderness, the bronze serpent. We'll get to that story in Numbers. Bronze is a picture of judgment. Well, wait, how can it be sacrifice and judgment? It's sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. It's sacrifice to hold off judgment. The sacrifice that happened on the bronze altar atoned for, covered the sins of the people so that God would not judge them yet. So when you talk about Jesus as our sacrificial offering, understand that the bronze also portrays Jesus as the judge. He is the judge. Amy Coney Barrett is not the final judge. She's brilliant. In fact, we may need ACB to deal with AOC, ASAP, FYI. <laughs> John chapter 5, verse 22 says, even the Father judges, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And when John sees Jesus in the Revelation, chapter 1, verse 15, he sees his feet like burnished bronze. Why? Because here comes the judge. Jesus is the sacrifice. You receive the sacrifice of Jesus, you're saved. You reject the sacrifice of Jesus, then the very sacrifice himself is the judge. Verse 8. Moreover, he made the laver of bronze with its base of bronze, from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting, which is so interesting. The bronze laver, this is that big brass bowl, and it would be filled with water, and they would come and they'd wash from that bowl. When you walk into the outer courtyard of the tabernacle, the first thing is the bronze sacrificial altar, but between the altar and the door into the inner tabernacle is the bronze laver for the priest to wash hands and feet before they went in. Every time they went inside, they had to wash first at the laver. But it's cool that it's, it's made from mirrors. See, mirrors at this time, mirrors in the ancient world were not glass like we see them or, or the, the mirrors that we all have in our homes. They were made of bronze. They were highly polished copper or, or bronze. And typically, they would be these discs or plates that were highly polished, and then they'd have inserted uh, wood or metal or ivory handles. 
and the women who were serving at the tent of meeting. So there were already a group of women who were out there serving. I don't know what they were doing. But it's really interesting to me that here in this ancient time where people say, oh, women were denigrated. Oh, in the, in the patriarchal society of the Old Testament, women didn't have a place. They're, they're involved. Remember how many times the women's heart, hearts were stirred to be involved in this process. And now we see the women are serving at the tent of meeting and they bring their mirrors. And they melt down the mirrors and it's these mirrors of the servant women that become the bronze laver for the washing of the priests. I think that's pretty cool. And it portrays for us the sanctifying washing of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Keep that in mind. Verse 9, then he made the court. And all the way down to verse 20, it talks about the outer court. And you can read that on your own time because we already read it and studied it. Same exact description of the outer court. Now they're building, they're making the screens and the curtains of the outer court. And then you get to verse 21. And it says, this is the tabernacle. Or this is the number of the things for the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony as they were numbered according to the command of Moses. For the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So Ithamar is counting all this stuff up. All the, these materials are coming in. He's counting it up. He's keeping a tally of the whole thing. Verse 22, now Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. There's that phrase again. With him was Aholiab, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and skillful workman, a weaver in blue and in purple and scarlet material and fine linen. All the gold that was used for the work in all the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the wave offering, get this, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Zach, can you believe it? I mean, <laughs> the silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A beka ahead, that is half a shekel, according to the shekel of sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. Remember, these are the, the silver uh, payment of redemption for the firstborn of all these households. The hundred talents of silver, silver being the medal of redemption in the Bible, were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, 100 sockets for the 100 talents and a talent for a socket. Of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their tops and made bands for them. The bronze of the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the sockets to the doorway of the tent of meeting and the bronze altar and its bronze grating and all the utensils of the altar and the sockets of the court and around and the sockets of the gate of the court and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the court all around. Now, the cost, because that's what was just described and what was being tallied up there in terms of talents and in terms of shekels and all these, these were weights. A talent is kikar in Hebrew, and that a talent, I already told you, is 75.6 pounds, one talent. So if you do the math, which I did, in today's prices, 
the gold mentioned here, back in verse 24, the 29 talents and 730 shekels of gold, my friends, that's one and a quarter tons of gold. Weighing in, it would, it would be a market value today of $76,200,000. A, a ton and a quarter of silver would be $976,400. Four tons of brass was brought, because the brass altar, that's, that's your big boy. And four tons of brass equaling $49,600. The precious metals alone, we're not even talking about the, the fabrics and, and the weaving. We're not talking about the precious stones, the onyx stones, all of these things that were brought in as part of this as well. And we're not talking about any of the labor cost. Precious metals alone comes to $77,226,000. That's just for the materials. If you added in construction costs, it would be doable. And this for a bunch of delivered slaves turned desert nomads. To read a tally like this and recognize who it came from and where it was gathered would be eye-popping. Are you kidding me? I mean, first of all, you might say, where'd they get all this stuff? Well, you know where. Egypt. It was given to them. They plundered Egypt as they left. But, but the, to put all this together, it's, just, it's, it's truly a remarkable amount. And it doesn't really even do it justice. For me to tell you, 76 or $77 million in, in these days of trillion-dollar debts, it doesn't sound like a lot. Although if I offered any one of you $77,226,000, I doubt you'd turn me down. It's a lot of money if you extrapolate across the years what that would actually have been at that time, the true value of this. There are estimates that it would be the equivalent of a billion dollars. This thing was incredibly pricey. They put everything into this tabernacle. An amazing movable tent. By comparison, the cost of the blood of Jesus for a bunch of slaves and nomads like us is beyond calculation. It's eternal. By the way, let me say this to you. I had some conversations with some people recently about universalism. Universalism as in the idea that everybody's just going to be saved anyway. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you follow him. All rivers lead to the ocean. All roads lead to the same conclusion. We're all going to be saved. It really doesn't matter. You can be a Christian. You can be a Buddhist. You can be a Muslim, whatever. You can be a, a total, in total rebellion. Ultimately, you're all going to be saved. That's universalism. And I absolutely reject it outright. And it's not because I don't want everybody to be saved. Of course we do. God wants all people to come to repentance to find salvation in Jesus Christ, all people. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to save every last person ever born in all of history, but you gotta choose it. And to say that everybody's gonna be saved whether they believe in, trust in, care for Jesus or not, denigrates the blood of Christ. That's the issue. That's why universalism turns my stomach, not because it's a, it's a view that I disagree with, but it's a view that denigrates the blood of Jesus shed for us. The incalculable, precious blood of Jesus was not a worthless thing at Calvary. It bought salvation for anybody who will say, I believe. You were not redeemed 
Peter said, and I repeat again, 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Chapter 39. See how fast we moved? The priestly garments. Moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place, as well as the holy garments which were for Aaron, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 2, he made the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen. They hammered out gold sheets, cut them into threads to be woven in with the blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen, the work of a skillful workman. They made attaching shoulder pieces for the ephod, And it was attached at its two upper ends. Skillfully woven band which was on it like its workmanship of the same material, gold, blue, scarlet, uh, purple, scarlet, fine twisted linen, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones, which would be on the shoulders, you might remember, in gold filigree settings, engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. Six names on one onyx stone, six names on the other. And he placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Four memorial stones for the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 8, he made the breast piece. And if you skip on down, all the, the rows, four rows on it of the stones, the row of ruby and, ruby and topaz and emerald and turquoise and sapphire and diamond and jason and agate and, and amethyst, a barrel and onyx and jasper set in gold filigree settings on this breast piece when they were mounted. And each one of the stones corresponded to the names of the sons of Israel, verse 14. They made on the breastpiece chains like cords, verse 15. They made two gold filigree settings and two gold rings and put the two gold rings on the two ends of the breastpiece, verse 16. If you read on down, they continued to work on all of this. They bound the breastpiece together with the rings of the ephod, the blue cord. They put it all together just as the Lord had commanded Moses, verse 21, verse 22. Then he made the robe of the ephod of woven work all blue. We talked through that previously. And on the bottom of the robe, they made the pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material on the hem of the robe and those little bells of pure gold between each one of those pomegranates around the, all around the hem of the robe, alternating, just as the Lord, verse 26, had commanded Moses. And they made the tunics of finely woven linen for Aaron and his son and the turban and his sons, plural, and the turban of fine linen, and the decorated caps of fine linen, that would be for the priests, and the linen breeches of fine twisted linen, and the sash of fine twisted linen of blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of the weaver, verse 29, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold inscribed on it like the engravings of a signet holy to the Lord. They fastened a blue cord to it, fastened it on the turban above. How? just as the Lord had commanded Moses. All of this stuff, the priestly garments, all made according to divine pattern and design, all then would be given to Aaron. All of it would be given to Aaron. Don't miss that this is given to Aaron. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. 
He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Principle number seven. We are most attractive to Jesus when we wear the garments of his salvation and his righteousness. The beautiful thing here is that Aaron and his sons didn't make their own clothes. The priests were not the weavers. They were the priests. The weavers were the weavers who wove these things together and put the materials together and made the high priest's robes and the ephod and the turban and the crown and everything that went with it. The weavers did that. And then it was given to Aaron. And we'll see in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, we'll see Aaron is going to don these things that will be put on him, given to him for his work of service. We are most attractive when we wear what was given to us. Don't ever miss that we have been given garments of salvation. We didn't make them. We have been given righteousness. We're not self-righteous. We've been given righteousness. Revelation 19, let's rejoice and be glad. Give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Your righteousness, my righteousness was given to me. I just get to wear it. The garments of salvation belong to Jesus. The robe of righteousness is his, but it's fitted to you, fitted to me by his grace. And thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. The sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they did. They brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its furnishings, its clasps, boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, the covering of porpoise skins and the screening veil, the ark of the testimony and its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, the bread of the presence, the pure lampstand with its arrangement of lamps and all its utensils and oil for the light, and the gold altar, the, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, the veil for the doorway of the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, poles, utensils, laver, stands, the hangings for the court, its pillars and sockets, the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and pegs, and all the equipment of the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the woven garments for ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, all of these things given, all of these things done. So the sons of Israel, verse 42, did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work, and behold, they had done it. Just as the Lord had commanded, this they had done, so Moses blessed them. My friends, the sons of Israel were all involved. They were all in on the work of the tabernacle. After the sin of the golden calf, now think about this with me. After that sin and after that mess and after the fear that they may lose the presence of the Lord, He finally comes back and says, all right, I forgive you. Now build my tabernacle. And they are a beehive of activity. In fact, the tabernacle was the buzz about camp for a good six months. We can track this. Three months from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Three months there uh, for the receiving of the law and then the rebellion and everything that went wrong and then the forgiveness of the Lord. And then six months they would work on the tabernacle for an entire year out from Egypt, as we'll see on Sunday. 
they would stay there with the tabernacle, camped, encamped at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, for one more year before they would ultimately then head out because God is working with and training his people. But notice at the end of this, once it was all completed, it says in verse 43 again, then Moses examined all the work and behold, they had done it. And the reason why it's listed out here, specifically and precisely, again and again, we see all the intricacies of this tabernacle is so that we can know they didn't miss a thing. God's commands for the tabernacle were exacting and they met the commands exactingly. Moses then examined it all, looked at every piece, every pole, every, every curtain, looked at all the furnishings to be sure they fit exactly the description of the Lord, the blueprints. They did it all exactly right according to all that the Lord had commanded. And then, and then, behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded the last four words, so Moses blessed them. They did the commandments and they got blessed. Dear family, just like Israel, I've got one last principle for you. Just like Israel and the tabernacle, God has a work for your life. God has a work for your life. He has a specific calling. He has a specific anointing. He has specific gifts and talents and abilities that he has given you. He has a specific work for your life here and now. And it's a work that once finished will be examined and finally finished, it's a work that will be blessed. But get this, principle number eight, the work of God is finished and being finished. The work of God is finished and it is being finished. When Jesus on the cross cried out, John 1930, to that wonderful phrase, it is finished, he said, and he gave up his spirit. Last words out of his mouth, finished. And the work was done. In fact, marvelously, the work was done before we were even born. The work was finished before you and I even began. Finished, done, there's nothing you can add to it. No amount of hard work on your part is gonna increase salvation. The work is done, it's finished. No personal sacrifice can add to your time in eternity. It's done. It's finished. No punishment in so-called purgatory can add to what's already been finished. It's finished. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected, and it's the same word as tetelestai, that is, he has finished for all time those who are sanctified. He has finished but note this the hebrew writer says he has perfected all time for all time those who are being sanctified he has perfected those who are being sanctified the work of god is finished and it is being finished and what i'm saying to you is this and, and i am walking through this right now in my life so i get it when you say, why is this happening? Why this, Lord? Why this hardship? Why this struggle? Why is the strain so great right now? Why do we have to deal with these things? Why, Lord? Listen, in Christ, you are saved, and that is 
finished. But he loves you. He loves me so much. We are being finished. We are engaged in the refining, purifying, sanctifying, preparing, finishing work of God. My salvation is secure. I can't add to it. I can't lose it. I can't take away from it. It's done. It's finished. It's paid for by the perfect blood of Jesus. But you know what? In my life right now, he's, he's doing the finishing work. Finishing work is a whole lot harder than I thought it was. I know, because Cheryl and I built a house. And we told Niccolo, our builder, hey, we'll take care of the finishing work. Oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> I thought it was painting. I didn't know what finishing. Man, we were in that house doing it. And some of, that, some of the house still isn't even finished. Don't even look at our baseboards for crying out loud. They're horrible. That was 15 years ago. I'll get around to it. The finishing work. The house is finished. We live there. But the finishing work still needs some things to be done. Having finished the work, Jesus is right now doing his finishing work on you and on me. He is working to make our faith perfect. For I am confident of this very thing Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Same word as tetelestai, he will finish it until the day of Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, repetition, we are simply fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When life gets hard, and it will, you're being finished. The work is done, but God is getting the work done in your life and in mine. Let's pray. Father, we see in this tabernacle such a beautiful picture, such a glorious picture of Jesus. Even as your word says, the word Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And I'm so thankful that you saw fit to exactingly portray all of these things to show us that when, when all these things are put together, that the work is completed. And Father, I'm so thankful that the examination, we see Moses, Lord, examining your people's work and then blessing them, but the examination was of Jesus. During that last week of his life, he was examined. And through his sacrifice, the blessing has come to all of us who believe. Father, tonight, I just want to say thank you for finishing the work. And I need to say, Lord, Thank you for the finishing work that you're doing in me right now. I thank you for the finishing work that you're doing in my precious wife right now. I thank you for the finishing work that you are doing in this fellowship right now. And we recognize we cannot add to the finished work, but we can receive your finishing work in our lives and in our hearts. And I pray, Father, oh, I pray, that you would increase our faith. It's the same prayer, Lord. Increase our faith and do the finishing work. It's the same prayer. And I ask for all of my brothers and my sisters and for myself tonight that you will continue your finishing work as you see fit. If it hurts, it hurts. 
If it's difficult, it's difficult. If we don't understand it, we don't have to. But we come trusting you and saying, dear Jesus, do the finishing work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.